I was fined for trespassing along the other students last semester back in December I sat in at the investments office alongside everybody else and it was a very special moment in all honesty <laughs> I hold that day very close to my heart Mary's song the Magnificat when she learns she's gonna have Jesus and she talks about how God is going to cast down the mighty and lift up the poor. Well, if we're to be Christ-like, shouldn't we at least name who the mighty are and name who the poor are that they are abusing? Even if we can't cast them down, we can still call out those systems the way God and Christ and all the Old Testament prophets do. There's literally no reason why 16-year-olds should be doing this work. It should be the older generation who have positions of power and have put made this situation happen in the first place. And literally the only reason that these students and young people are stepping up is because nobody else is and it's their future. This episode is our very last, and we'd like to spend it by talking about what comes next, about what happens when we come home, ready to make change in our own communities. Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. Thanks for joining us. This season, we've waded through a lot of heavy topics, hearing highly personal stories of how environmental degradation and climate change are affecting the health of communities. But now that we're home, what do we do with those stories? That's what we want to talk about today, how people like us are engaging, and why it's not always easy. It all kind of comes down to a dilemma we've come up against. What do we do as individuals with new ideas when we operate in a society run by institutions built on old ones? And for these conversations, we find ourselves at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, making some unexpected connections. Well, I'm Mickey. My name is Mickey Matiba. This is Mickey. Um, I'm a first year here at Yale, and I plan on studying women, gender, sexuality studies, and political science. However, the Mickey is matter-of-fact in an unassuming kind of way. She has this bold and spirited side that came through the longer we talked. We've heard from Mickey once before this season, in episode three. She grew up in Deer Springs, Arizona, on Navajo Nation, and is Navajo herself. The indigenous people since time immemorial have shared a deep connection with the land and have based their humanity in that connection to the land. But we'd originally connected with Mickey because we heard about Fossil Free Yale, an active student group organizing for climate justice on campus that Mickey's involved with. Um, so this fight has been going on for how long? I think 2013. I've always heard 2013 from people in Fossil Free Yale. Fossil Free Yale is part of a broader national movement calling for the divestment of fossil fuels that has taken off at universities across the country. In fact, Michaela and I were involved with the divestment campaign ourselves at our own school, Eastern Mennonite University. I can't give a very detailed history of Fossil Free Yale, but students have been fighting for divestment from um, fossil fuel companies for a long time. The gist of divestment is this. Most universities, including EMU and Yale, have an endowment, a pool of money that they invest in the stock market. 
The returns are then often used as a source of funding for scholarships and development projects. Essentially, Mickey and the others at Fossil Free Yale are asking the university to withdraw their endowment money, or divest it, from any fossil fuel companies they own stock in, and reinvest it elsewhere. Historically, divestment has been a way of aligning an institution's monetary decisions with its values. The goal is usually to make a moral statement, but if the movement becomes big enough, it can also make a tangible difference, not necessarily because the industries suffer financially, but because it's a way of garnering energy for a social movement. Back in the 1960s, for instance, divestment and the subsequent boycotting of South African companies pushed the South African government into negotiations that ultimately dismantled apartheid. I first joined Fossil Free Yale last semester. Well, I was involved with like the Native American Cultural Center right off the bat, and a couple of people from the NACC were involved in Fossil Free Yale. And just seeing indigenous people um, living by the responsibility to the land inspired me to also just take part in that responsibility. Mickey sees her involvement in Fossil Free Yale as one avenue for living responsibly with the land, while also resisting the actions of Yale that don't align with her roots as Navajo. Could you explain to us the specifics of the investments in question that are called for removal and what specifically is being asked for in return? Well, Yale's invest or is invested in a number of evil things, but the Endowment Justice Coalition two main demands are that they cancel Puerto Rican debt and that they divest and withhold all closings in fossil fuel companies. And making divestment public and being very open and verbal about it is just a large part of like the moral, the morality of divesting from these evil things. Last year, Fossil Free Yale formed a coalition with another student organization calling for Yale to release their holdings in Puerto Rican debt. We won't go into detail here, but it makes for a wise collaboration. One group is concerned about the perpetuation of climate change, and the other is concerned about the burden of debt on a part of our nation that's most vulnerable to climate change. Though the university has been relatively unresponsive to either request, they have made a few quiet changes. But of course, if their decisions are going to contribute to the momentum of the movement or make a statement of any kind, they need to be announced loud and clear. Yale has sold like 99% of its holdings within Antero, a fracking company, but they did that very low key. They didn't say anything about it. It wasn't until um, investment papers were released or reports were released that people were like, oh, they actually did this, yet they did not make a public statement. And mm-hmm. Yale making a public statement about it would have definitely set some sort of example to other institutions. Yeah, and it's it's frustrating. Why do you think Yale is holding back on something like that? Well, David Swenson is an accomplished, I say that in quotes, um, investor and just, he's an incredibly large voice in the world of college endowments. And I think that maybe divestment would just really antithesize everything that he believes in, and um, he's not going to give that up anytime soon. As Yale's chief investment officer, David Swenson understandably feels pressure to perform. In 2018, Yale's endowment was $29.4 billion, the second largest of any university in the States behind Harvard. And in his 30 plus years in the position, 
Swenson has managed to secure an annual return of 13%. Let me just repeat that. Yale's endowment is almost $30 billion and over 30 years has an annual return rate of up to 13%. Last year, Yale made $3.3 billion. That's over $350,000 an hour and over $9 million every day. These are enormous sums of money we're talking about. And for this reason, investors all over the country look at Yale's portfolio strategies as a model. If David Swenson spoke, others would follow. And so Mickey's right. If Swenson's job description simply dictates him to make as much money for Yale as possible, then he has been wildly successful. And Yale released position papers about divestment um, last semester, and they were basically like, well, climate change isn't really the fault of the people producing it, but the people relying on fossil fuels and as long as people rely on these these form or on fossil fuels then it's just going to be a part of our investments this sounded kind of fishy to us so we looked up yale's official position on fossil fuel divestment here's the very first sentence yale's guiding principles are predicated on the idea that consumption of fossil fuels not production is the root of the climate change problem The statement goes on to make some good points, that modern society couldn't exist or function without the consumption of fossil fuels, and that without the demand of consumers, fossil fuel suppliers wouldn't have a market. But I think it's just as misleading to lay the blame and the onus for making change entirely at the feet of consumers. As a consumer myself, it's obvious that there are a ton of different factors that influence my purchasing decisions, many of which are out of my control. Tangent aside though, let's go back to Mickey. Peter Salovey, president of Yale, and like Marvin Chun, dean of the college, um, are constantly like, oh, well, we'd like to sit down and talk with you about it. But those talks are ultimately unproductive and not really conducive to anything. At EMU, the situation was a little different, but we also felt that it was crucial to try and collaborate with administration first before assuming the need to take a more aggressive or adversarial approach. Why create unnecessary tension? But at Yale, they've tried to go through the proper channels with little success. Students have, well, since 2013, have taken the administrative route of all of this. So that meant um, creating some sort of presentation to present to the ACIR, the Advisory Committee on Investors' Responsibility. And then the ACIR responds to the CCIR it's, it's a very long process. I think the CCIR only meets like once a year. Um, the ACIR only like three times a year. And in the end, it didn't really come to anything. In other words, the bureaucratic structure of the investor's office doesn't allow for prolonged constructive conversation. And neither is the administration making room for that. It feels like every time they reach out to talk, they're dismissed without much thought. That whole administrative route I feel is designed to just exclude students from really any say in this. And so I think students definitely felt like they wasted a lot of time taking this administrative route, but I think that it's also just worth saying to people who would be ready to criticize the organization that they at least took this administrative route and that's their reason for escalating now. This year, Fossil Free Yale's main strategy has involved events called sit-ins, where they literally sit in the lobby of the investments building, either until they receive a satisfactory response or are forced to leave. 
They spend their time singing, meditating, giving presentations, and chanting, sometimes for up to six hours. And last time, Mickey, along with 47 other students and one faculty member, were fined for trespassing when they refused to leave. And do you hear from anyone? Like, were you received by anyone in the building, or did they come listen to you? Or how did that work? <laughs> um, two students went up to the um, investments office themselves this time, the most recent action before spring break. And it had snowed the night before. And so they like went up to the investments office and they said that as they were speaking to the receptionist, um, she was just like very maniacally laughing. It was very strange and it was just kind of like, oh, no one came in because of the snow, but they could clearly see people at their desks and they refused to speak to them. Yeah, I guess that just kind of sums up our interaction with administration in general. As a prestigious academic institution, Yale produces some cutting-edge research, some of which directly supports climate response. Their programs in religion and ecology, climate change communication, and environmental studies are among the best in the nation. But when push comes to shove, at the administrative level, the institution isn't willing to be nearly as outspoken as its students and its research. And it starts to get even more questionable, or at least inconsistent, when you think about how Yale harnesses the innovation of its students to advertise itself as a progressive institution. This starts to get at some of the broader concerns Mickey has about Yale, concerns that make her question her choice to attend at all. And I think initially I was definitely pretty excited. I was proud about getting into Yale. Mm-hmm. And then I think the excitement eventually wore off when I just considered the history of New England in general <laughs> and the erasure of indigenous people and Yale really being at the heart of all of that alongside like Harvard and other institutions that for a long time I had my eyes on. Mickey is especially aware of a lot of historical harms that we tend to gloss over. Like, for one, the fact that the people who founded Yale University were some of the same people who pushed out Native Americans in New England. And I got here, was immediately bummed out. (laughs) I was like, oh, this wealth, prestige, and just the image of Yale is right here, right now, but I really just don't feel like it was ever made for me, or it was just made on the backs of people like me. The longer she's been here, the more disheartened she's become by learning about the institution's founding. Even the man whom Yale is named after, Elihu Yale, was a slave trader and merchant with the British East India Company, which itself was one of the most notoriously atrocious contributors of harms in history. In 1718, Yale donated 400 books and a large stack of goods to the college, and in return, maintains his legacy as the namesake of one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the world. This was news to me, but it makes me understand a little better where Mickey's coming from with this. As the school year rolled around, I could see a lot of other first years excited beyond their mind to be at Yale, and incredibly proud to be here, and I really just couldn't be proud of it. Uh, I still find it hard to really relate to other people who um, may not be entirely aware of the 
real impact of Yale's investments or Yale's history in general, but people who are also aware of it yet continue to be proud of it and choose to bask in whatever prestige is present here. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating. (laughs) Nevertheless, Mickey says she's found a home among her fellow students in the divestment campaign. The students in these groups have definitely made me feel like I could call New Haven home. I have to have some sense of belonging. Otherwise, I just feel miserable all the time, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But the students in Fossil for Yale and the Endowment Justice Coalition have definitely made me feel like I have a home here somewhat. Mickey's struggle with identity at Yale raises questions that are being wrestled with by institutions all over the U.S. right now. What parts of our history should we be proud of? Or should we be proud of any of it? What do we lose when we hold so tightly to our history that we aren't willing to change? Back at Yale, Mickey isn't the only one asking such questions. Yale in particular is really resistant to talking about things that make it seem bad in the past because it has so much wrapped up in its tradition and it's bureaucratically and institutionally and philosophically resistant to changing the things that have made it great. This is Paul Rink. I'm Paul Rink and I am pursuing a Juris Doctorate and a Master's of Environmental Management degree. We were also joined by Paul's good friend, Xander Pellegrino, who I happen to go to high school with and is now a graduate student at the Forestry School. I'm Xander Pellegrino, and I'm pursuing a Master's in Environmental Science. Paul and Xander ran into us at an event our first evening at Yale, and enthusiastically agreed to interview with us on the spot. Xander has one semester of school left, and Paul just completed his degrees in May. So both have a good feel for the general attitude toward climate change and environmental justice on campus. I've actually been really pleasantly surprised. Um, I came to Yale Law School before I came to Yale Forestry. And one of the reasons I came was because I knew there was the Forestry Environmental School here. And so I was already thinking about doing a joint degree and I knew there was some focus on environmental issues. But I didn't realize how big climate change in particular was going to be on campus. And I think it's increased since I've arrived. Even environmental justice is a common part of conversation, at least at the Forestry School where Paul and Xander attend. I think at the Forestry School, there is a lot of talk about it. I think there could be more, but it's definitely something that people know about and would recognize the term, and it's, it's definitely a part of the conversation, for sure. What are your thoughts? I, I agree that it's, I mean, it's a term that people use and recognize. I don't know that people agree on a way forward or a recognition of Yale's historical complacency and getting us to this point where we have environmental injustices. I don't think there is consensus about that. Not that there should be consensus, but I think that there's people that really do resist the idea that Yale historically as an institution is involved with creating climate injustices, when I think that's a part of the conversation that should happen. Xander mentioned an orientation program that students at the FES school go through, which has historically included a community engagement section, 
but it hasn't always been led in a way that promotes understanding and justice between Yale students and New Haven's diverse community. So last year, a group of students created a petition to adjust the program to reflect the school's stated values of equity and collaboration. So we can talk about um, a petition and white supremacy and the viral movement more broadly, but there was a um, there was a group of students who held a banner in the class photo last year saying that we needed to dismantle white supremacy in the environmental movement, which started a conversation at Yale. The reason Xander is talking about class pictures is because the stairwell in Sage Hall, the symbolic home of the Forestry Environmental School, has a picture of every FES class dating back to 1904. The class of 1904 features a group of white men in suit jackets, while classes in recent years are much larger and more diverse. And then last year, the class decided to hold a banner that called for the dismantling of white supremacy within the environmental movement. But that's not all. On the ground floor, just by the doorway, hangs a portrait of FES founder Gifford Pinchot, who is not exactly progressive in his views on diversity and race, to put it mildly. It hangs right next to a bulletin board celebrating environmental champions who are people of color. Walking into the building, the tension is almost palpable. And actually, to build off of that, I don't think this is uniquely Yale. I think it's something that's really traditional institutions, and the divestment program has been really resisted by the administration. I'm a part of a coalition trying to get the to Yale to sign on to the We Are Still In Coalition, and it's been amazing to me how resistant they've been to this, just signing this petition in, co- in solidarity with a bunch of other colleges around the country. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I've, I've really come to realize that these historical institutions are not going to be at the forefront of progressive movements or change. I find that Paul and Xander's questions about Yale's historical legacy relate to a tension I've experienced in my upbringing. It's a tension between tradition and change, a dance between convention and progress that exists in the classrooms of my high school, in the pews of my church, and in the boardroom of my university. How do you hold tightly to a legacy that has shaped the identity of the institution with pride while remaining open to change, which often necessitates a pointed rejection of parts of that legacy. Isn't it so sad? We are just now learning the correct ways to love each other now that the world is ending. I mean, maybe this is divine intervention or we are just horrible with our timing, but the think pieces about radical love are swallowing up my news feed just as surely as the landslides are gobbling up uneven earth. So I guess I've got to be grateful that we are learning something. As the tsunamis beat their skulls against the coast, I will respect the fact that we have different needs and ask for consent before I hug you. And as the earthquakes crumble the soil, when you tell me about the grief flowing throughout your blood, I will not draw away from you. Instead, I will bring you coffee and chocolates in hopes that my love might make us feel a little less small. As the nuclear blasts tear into the planet and render all vegetation inedible, we will not make unsolicited comments about each other's weight. Instead, I will marvel at how you still have your smile. The stars will fall out of the sky one by one when I don't force my children to display affection at family gatherings and believe them when they say certain relatives make them uncomfortable. I will teach them how no is the most powerful word they have in their vocabulary. The snowstorms, now wild and unexpected and more frequent, will gawk at how freely I apologize and do not blame my babies for my own shortcomings. I'm sorry I was wrong, 
will be but a whisper amongst the bombs and the gunpowder. As bullets talk their bloody backtalk into fragile borders, we will ask, what is a border? What is a red line? What is the meaning of all the separations now that we've been forced to reckon with our greatest truth? What is it about ego death that forces us to look into ourselves and bear witness to that unspeakable terror that we may not outlast our mistakes? Who will answer the big questions when history runs out of steam? Climate change makes everything so much more immediate. In this day and age, I don't have time for ambiguity. Let's get married and have a bunch of hybrid babies raised on a mix of survival and love, and we'll all live in a bunker in the mountains far from all the things that made us hurt each other. As we feast on tree bark and earthworms, I will smile at you, teeth filled with dirt, and tell you that I love you. I love you. I love you just as surely as the moon has bled out of the sky. Many years from now, if the ocean hasn't swallowed the last of our cities and the sun has not scorched the earth into oblivion, my children's children's grandchildren will know nothing about the sadness that swept across the Atlantic, took root in unfamiliar soil, and buried its head there. I have often questioned what survival at the end of the world looks like. Once everything goes silent, do you think love pours out of the body when the light goes out, or does it remain stagnant, waiting to be exhumed once more? Many thanks to Yale student and now recent graduate Ashia Ajani for sharing her poem with us. It's called How We Love Each Other. One of the reasons I love this poem is because I think Ashia taps into some emotions that a lot of people my age feel very deeply. And that's part of what we're talking about here too, differences in generational perspective, something that comes up naturally in our conversations about institutional engagement. For me, the emotions that come through in Ashia's poem are highly relatable. It's an anxiety felt by members of our generation who are born into a world that society tells us is dying, and that it's up to us to save it because those who came before us are too depressed, too tired, or too bitter to make the necessary changes. It's a confined frustration over centuries of wrongdoing that leaks out of us in the form of impulsivity and nihilism. And it's the ever-present, nagging question that none of us ever really want to totally face up to. What will our world look like in 50 years, when I grow old? I'm generalizing a bit here, but I know it's not just Ashia and I who feel this way. We aren't alone. We're going to go back to Paul now. He has a few more thoughts about young people and engaging with institutions about climate change. But this time, the institution in question isn't academic. So the crux of the case isn't that the federal government failed to do anything to stop climate change, is that they actively did things to keep climate change happening when they knew it was going to have these negative impacts on the future generations. When we talked to him, Paul is finishing up his law degree, and for his summer internship, he worked on a case with a group called Our Children's Trust, a nonprofit organization that has filed a lawsuit against the United States on behalf of 21 kids and teens. This case is called Juliana versus the United States. 21 youth plaintiffs from around the country are suing the federal government for actively disseminating and perpetuating a fossil fuel-based energy system that they knew, based on historical documents, to be causing climate change that would have impacts on future generations' constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property. When the case began back in 2015, all 21 of the plaintiffs were younger than 18, in fact, their age is the basis of their claim. They're arguing that, 
by continually promoting the fossil fuel industry, the U.S. federal government has taken an active role in obstructing the rights of young people through climate change. There's a number of legal theories in play, two of which are based in the Constitution under equal protection doctrine and then due process protections. And then the third one is called the public trust doctrine. We're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but essentially, our children's trust is appealing the parts of the Constitution that protect the well-being of American citizens. First off, the government's promise to protect natural resources for the sake of public use, and second, a guarantee that all citizens will be granted equal protection under the law. The plaintiffs are arguing that the threat of climate change compromises those promises for people of their generation and generations to come. Currently, it's being held on appeal at the Ninth Circuit, the motion to dismiss the case. And if that motion to dismiss is denied by the Ninth Circuit, it'll probably go to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And if the Supreme Court denies the motion to dismiss, then the, the case will go to trial finally. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Long process. So, so the decision to have the trial is going to the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> and if the Supreme Court or the Ninth Circuit says uh, the motion to dismiss is granted, then the case will never go to trial. Mm -hmm. It'll just die mm -hmm. right there. Okay. Mm -hmm. By the time all this ends up ironed out, the young people might not be so young anymore. <laughs> well, to be honest, uh, they've all grown three years since then, or four mm. almost. And so some of the plaintiffs that filed the case when they were 18 are now 21. Mm. And yeah, it's yeah. troublesome because there is a time frame here that's important. So in other words, since being filed four years ago, the case has still not been granted a hearing at all. But if the case is heard and the young people win, the U.S. government would have to fulfill three things. First is declaratory relief, which just means that the government would admit they've done something wrong. Second is injunctive relief, which would prohibit the government from granting leases or permits for fossil fuel extraction on federal land. And third is a mandate to the court that would require the executive branch to develop a climate recovery plan that would transition our economy into renewable energy. The process is long and arduous, but even if it doesn't go to trial, Paul is confident that it's been a worthwhile pursuit. Although I really believe in this case, and it's not just because of the court case itself and what the outcome will be, I think it's raised the profile of climate change in a way that is somewhat revolutionary. There's literally no reason why a 16-year-old should be doing this work. It should be the older generation who have positions of power and have put made this situation happen in the first place. And literally the only reason that these students and young people are stepping up is because nobody else is and it's their future mm -hmm. and it's not gratifying to hear people say we're so proud of you go get them when it's not your responsibility as right. a young person to do that Paul brings up a familiar frustration. The fight against climate change must be intergenerational. We need the wisdom of a long view that comes from our elders, the loyalty and practicality of my parents' age group, and the clarity and vision of my own. But too often, it feels like we've been left high and dry. We're applauded for our efforts as a generation, yes, but rarely are we offered the true support or authority we need to get anything done. It feels as if we're being asked to take the steering wheel of a moving car. 
We know how to operate the car, and we know who to ask for directions to get to our destination. But we're still in the back seat, an old white guy still has his foot on the gas pedal, and we're headed straight for a cliff. Our next interview took us to one place we have felt this frustration most strongly, to another institution that has held a very important place in our own lives as Mennonites, the church. It can be a frustrating place at times, and it's a complicated place for many, but it's also a place where we might find just the vision we need. Noah was the first conservationist. If it was all about people, he would have only had to bring on a few animals onto the ark for us to hunt and fish once they repopulate the earth. But scripture tells us he took all the animals. This is Nathan Imsall. Nathan Imsall, E, M is in Mary, P is in Peter, S, A, L, L. Probably say the Reverend Nathan Imsall at this point. Nathan is a forward, to the point kind of guy. He speaks with conviction and expertise that will serve him well as a reverend in the Episcopal Church. I'm in my fourth and final year of the dual degree program at Yale's Divinity School and Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. For some, this may sound like a bit of an unusual combination, but it's actually a popular dual degree option at Yale. And aside from his academic pursuits, Nathan is highly engaged with both the religious and the scientific community. At Yale, he works for the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication as a digital advisor, and he's a former digital strategist for the Sierra Club, while at the same time managing a Facebook page called Episcopal Climate News. From Nathan's perspective, the combination makes a lot of sense. I didn't connect it to religion until I learned, probably in college, that people always separate harming the environment from harming the human. We can't focus on the environment, it's too expensive, we got to care about people first. But as we've learned, if you hurt the environment, you also often hurt the people. We are so interconnected and intertwined because that is the way God designed creation. Why would God tell us a story, though, that mentions two of every single animal instead of just the ones we need? Well, it's because every animal, including humans, needs every other animal. God designed the world to be interconnected and intercentric. And the more we learn about Earth system sciences over the last 30 years, really, we're learning more and more about all those scientific connections. Well, they're right there in Genesis 9 in the flood story. And American Indian tribes and other indigenous tribes and really every world religion have been telling us about interconnection forever. And again, this is something we've heard a lot of too. But in the context of this conversation, Nathan also points to Jesus as a model for understanding that connection. Some people look at the Bible through a perspective of dominion over the land. Some look at it, if not dominion, at least land as a gift. Go, this land is for you. Take it. Kill all the Canaanites and commit genocide to get the land that is yours. Uh, and others will look and see Jesus never praying in the temple, but always praying in the garden, in the wilderness, on a boat out in the water. Jesus would go to the temple to teach and flip tables. Uh, we should go to the temple or to church too. I'm not saying otherwise. But Jesus always prayed outdoors, so there's that connection to land and water and air as well. Not just land, but the earth as a whole. As Christians, we've tended to move away from that truth, that Jesus often found himself closest to God outside. We choose to worship in comfortable, air-conditioned churches that have enough space in the pews that we don't have to, God forbid, sit directly next to someone. But why have we moved in that direction? I think, unfortunately, all too often both the academy and religion 
follow culture rather than the other way around. Certainly they, they influence one another in a cycle. And you see that in almost any religion, in almost any continent, in almost any century. It's not just Christianity. There are times when Christianity can stand against the culture and, and reform it and, and call us to live in the city of God rather than the city of humans. That's Christianity at its finest, when it unashamedly embraces the traits Jesus modeled. And sometimes that means acting independently of its parent culture. But there are other times when uh, culture defines religion and co-opts it. And I think that's very much happened in the U.S. and in Europe with, with capitalism, uh, runaway, unregulated capitalism. I'm not speaking against profit, but the, the, the way which we see profit above all else. And that's facilitated by schools and universities. Uh, it's facilitated by business schools that teach that, but it's also facilitated by religion and religious schools because who funds the pastors? Who funds the professors? It's the businesses. It's the people in the pews who work for those businesses. Here's my donation, but pastor, this is what I want to hear. We're all intertwined and interlocked in all of this, one humanity. That interplay between society and the church is a phenomenon that underlies a lot of what we're talking about here. It gets at a question that's been disputed in the church ever since its beginning. To what extent are we supposed to engage with the broader world? Is it our place to participate in politics, to go to public schools, or to run private ones? And once we realize that it's impossible to totally extract ourselves from mainstream culture, it also lies at the root of the question we're asking this episode. How are we meant to engage? According to Nathan, understanding our interconnection to everything in and of the world is critical in understanding God's vision for creation. And further, he thinks that climate change is actually helping us realize that interconnection as a church once again. As climate change and other ecological devastation grows worse, and the science grows more and more clear, and as the effects grow more immediate, we're waking up to that all across society. And religion and the academy are no different. We wandered away, but how can we wander back? To illustrate his point that we are and always have been a part of this community of creation and that it takes a great deal of hubris on our part to pretend that we're not, Nathan gave us the synopsis of a sermon he's been working on. It has to do with rocks. I learned a year or two ago that glaciers suppress volcanoes. As glaciers melt, volcanoes are erupting more often, or at least they will begin to soon. Likewise, fracking in the Midwest has caused some earthquakes. Fracking contributes to climate change because of methane leaks. It also creates other environmental problems, especially through the enormous amount of water it uses. So here's some ecological devastation causing earthquakes, causing rocks to shake. Like the psalmist says, the stones will cry out, and now they literally are. And this is all scriptural. We were told this was going to happen. The stones really are crying out. And creation really is groaning, like Paul says. So even as we're given a vision for creation, we're also warned of the ways that it can go wrong, that the stones will cry out and creation will groan when we wander away from that understanding. And this takes us back to the question that Nathan mentioned earlier. How can we wander back? The thing that I love the absolute most about God and Jesus in the Bible is that we get to try again every single day. The prodigal son and the widow's lost coin and the lost sheep this concept of loving what we find, of finding what is lost, and of giving it another chance. They're powerful parables on their own, but you sit there and read that full chapter in Luke, and it's an amazing 
internal uh, spiritual experience every time I reread those stories together. We get to try again with the Earth, too. There's still hope. We're not done yet. The IPCC scientists say we only have 12 years left to act to avoid the worst of the destruction. I say we still have 12 years left to act. And the church can lead the way on the moral side of that. For Nathan, at this point in his life, engaging with the church is hardly even a question. But for me and many others in my generation, the answer isn't quite as straightforward. I do believe, like we've said before, that there's great potential here, which Nathan describes, for the church to be a guidepost for justice and peace building and joy in a world facing widespread devastation and conflict. But the church is also fraught with division and indecision. And for many, it's a place of hurt, where, ironically, considering the messages of interconnectedness and selfless love it's founded on, a sense of belonging can be hard to come by. I've seen many friends of mine walk away, despondent and cynical, fed up with the church's apparent inability to face the current and historical harms it's created, or to engage in messy, complex, and sometimes incriminating dialogue, the topics that occupy our thoughts and govern our lives outside of church. It's too easy to sit in the pews in our Sunday best, questions and doubts piling up as the service goes on, and then smile our way through fellowship hour, as if it all makes sense. I've felt all of these things myself, to a much lesser degree than some, the hurt, the cynicism, and mostly the confusion. And I've been on the other end as well, as one who, despite having good intentions, doesn't invite others in. So the question remains, Have we wandered too far from God's vision? Is it even worth sticking around? Let's go back to Paul one last time to hear his story on engaging with the church. I actually am Catholic, and I grew up in a small town in northern Michigan called Gaylord, ironically. <laughs> and and I was really involved in my Catholic church. And two winters ago, winter of 2017, I came back from Yale home for Christmas, and I was really driven to go talk to the priest in my Catholic church about, you know, just even going up and talking about climate change as a social justice and an ethical issue to mm-hmm. the congregation. So when Paul got home, he sent his priest an email, but his priest didn't respond for weeks. And then when he finally did, he basically said, no, I can't do that. I hope you understand because, you know, the pulpit is this really important position. And if you have somebody saying something that could be seen as political, like you run into problems with the bureaucracy of the Catholic Church, and you just can't do that kind of thing. This was pretty surprising to me because the Catholic Pope, Pope Francis, has been very vocal about climate change. So much so that it's a primary topic of his 2015 encyclical entitled Laudato Si. Since its publication, Laudato Si has been immensely popular. And it's also really important because it provides a precedent for discussing climate change within a Catholic context. 
So I asked Paul if he had brought it up with the priest. Well, so he asked me when I emailed him, have you read the encyclical um, Laudato Si? And I said, of course. (laughs) So Paul remains saddened that despite the Pope's emphasis on the topic of climate change, his priest feels as if his hands are tied. It's been frustrating to me because these big organizations that have so much power and really there's no reason why they shouldn't be taking a bigger step considering that the ethical implications of these concerns align with their mission statements. Mm -hmm. It's been really frustrating for me. We resonate with this too. The church is meant to be a moral compass, a strong driving force for change. And yet the politics always seem to get in the way. I am actually going to try again when I go home again to reach out to him, but I'm not holding out much hope because he seemed hesitant. Mm-hmm. And based on my hometown, I'm not that surprised because it's a little bit like if people talk about climate change, it's usually as the butt of a joke more right. than anything else. Like <laughs> snowing outside, yeah, right, climate change, right? Right. right. <laughs> kind of thing. And now that Paul is studying climate change, he thinks he may have lost a bit of credibility in his hometown. After all, he's studying climate policy at Yale, both a topic and an institution that would be considered liberal where he comes from. I think a lot of people at home think I've been indoctrinated, which may or may not be true. Like if, <laughs> if, if like learning about science and <laughs> counts as indoctrination. <laughs> but honestly, a lot of people don't believe in climate change where I'm from because they just really haven't done the research themselves mm-hmm. and they fall in line with what they hear on the news. Yeah. So if he gave you the opportunity to do your sermon, what would you say? Oh, I actually, I have this little pithy, like, three-minute written-out document. I'm trying to, let me, now I have to think about what it said, though. <laughs> what basically, I made the moral argument for why Catholics should take action on climate change, in particular because uh, they have a mandate to live as Jesus lived and to care for the poorest and the weakest in society, and climate change, in my mind, and honestly, truly, is the biggest social justice issue of our generation, if not ever, in terms of the people who are the least responsible for causing it are those who are feeling the brunt of its impacts. In terms of like generations, uh, the young people versus old, older generations, and also the global south versus the global north, and even within the United States itself, lower-income communities, migrant communities, diverse communities of color, et cetera, are feeling it when they often didn't have as much of an impact on causing it. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I think there's a moral imperative to do things on climate change. And it's actually the driving force for me in terms of my desire to have a career in climate change law policy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we might be on the same page. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yes, we were and are very much on the same page, which then prompted us to return to our question. We wondered, as someone whose track record with the church isn't perfectly smooth, is it still worth engaging, even as the frustrations pile up? I think there's a lot of potential to like ground our response to climate change and the moral ethics of our church background, but maybe that's impractical for for our generation writ large to like ground themselves in in a in a church body just because it's uh, not practical for them or they don't you know find hope in that or they've been oppressed and you know, any sorts of ways. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, is there another way or another place where we center our climate change response ethics? Do you think churches are the best place for people our age to do that? Or is there 
somewhere else that we should be looking to to like convene i i personally think churches are a really important place and one of the reasons for that is because while i think you're tr- you're right that generally our generation doesn't find as much in the church i think that that's a generalization i have a lot of friends back home that are very very much my age and very involved with the church and mm-hmm. and i think that those that's the demographic that could really benefit from mm-hmm. learning more about climate change understanding it better from an ethical standpoint and in addition i think the generation above us and the generation above that are still heavily persuaded by religious institutions in general um, and i think that that's an important thing to tap into the problem is i don't i don't know the best way to go about advocacy as people in our situation i think oftentimes the authority comes from the religious figures themselves but i don't think that's a reason to sign them off and i think it actually is a really important avenue we like paul think there's a tremendous amount to be gained from cross-generational partnerships and we'd be super excited to start working on that together because there's no time to lose so we'd like to extend an invitation because our engagement comes with a few caveats right now we don't feel legitimized in our hopes or in our fears we have yet to hear widespread commitment from older adults that they are willing to work with us and for change and we have yet to see our institutions demonstrate that they care about our future as much as their own. Yes, we do have to change. Yes, our lives will look different. And yes, it will be hard. But if it was easy, everyone would be doing it already. I recently heard a speaker who talked about the hope of the resurrection and how we often take its message to heart as individuals but not as institutions. As Christians, we believe that Jesus has overcome death. This is the very thing that allows us to be creative and generous and joyful in life. And yet our institutions still fear it. And I think right now that fear is paralyzing. Honestly, it's one of the reasons I don't go to church often because it feels like that fear has choked the life out of a community that could and should be vibrant. What if our religious institutions lived into the resurrection story to realize that there are worse things than death? and that failing to act true to our calling is one of those things. I am often moved to act when I see things that are wrong, but I know that many people understandably feel despair instead, and when we feel despair, we can be paralyzed. And and instead of getting a sense of urgency when we see things going bad, we feel overwhelmed and back off. There is still hope. As Christians, we know there's hope through the resurrection. The apostles didn't get it. He kept saying, Jesus kept saying, this temple will be rebuilt in three days. And they didn't understand what he meant. They couldn't see that the resurrection was coming. And so they gathered in the upper room after the death to mourn and think about what comes next. They'd already been told what comes next. They couldn't see it. I don't know what's next. I don't know if we're going to solve the climate crisis or any ecological crises. But I know that like those apostles in the upper room, we're called to gather and talk and keep trying because maybe there's a resurrection coming of the earth this time that we could we can't see right now, just as the apostles couldn't see. Our inability to see, our feelings of despair, are no reason to give up. That's what hope and faith are all about.
Here we are at an end that, as always, is also a beginning. We've come a long way together, me and you and everyone we've met on this journey. And now we part ways, knowing that the enormity of the situation at hand is indisputable. The challenges are enormous. People are realizing something is amiss. Something is deeply out of sync. Sometime I lay at night just quietly thinking about what the heck is going on. We've seen that both the roots and the impacts of climate change reach deeper and further than we could have imagined. I think ultimately this is a soul crisis and a spiritual crisis. Food as, you know, like language is fast disappearing. Right now, millions of people are seeking refuge due to climate. You know, I wake up every day thinking, you know, uh, these kids, you know, what are we going to do for them? And that the situation we're in is not at all simple. And so I think a lot of our lifestyle is built on the exploitation of people either in their own country or once they arrive here too. They doing to the blacks the same thing they doing to the Native American. Figure you're not gonna say anything or speak up. So we leave you with some challenges. With climate change, the biggest change that needs to happen is not in the climate itself, but in the, the climate change of the human heart. What communities are affected first? low-income communities of color. So we need to be at the decision-making table and at the forefront. And we leave you with some assurances. That's what it is, the joy. The joy in the faith and of God is, is what is the common ground between us. There's no difference between Baptists and yogis. <laughs> and pretty much what it boils down to is your liberation is our liberation, and our liberation is your liberation that we exist among a community of unlimited creativity and extraordinary resilience. As we regather and reclaim and resituate ourselves as beings in the earth, we will realize we're not alone. There's no need to be lonely, but we are amidst the earth community, a very vibrant community of life. In the words of the Talmud, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. And walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer. Special thanks goes to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. And one last time, a huge thanks to all of our musicians. It didn't take long for us to realize that music really does change everything. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Madeline Miller, credits music is by Luke Mullet, and transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Abor Bishop. This week's shout out goes to James Souter, who helped connect us to a ton of folks at the Yale Forestry and Environmental School, even from across the pond in Amsterdam. And a big shout out to Doug Graber Newfeld and Daniel Belrose at CSCS for all the food and the money and equipment and advice, and for dealing with us all year long. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. We've got episode transcripts, a map of where we've been, some extra resources, and our episode five photo essay. 
so make sure you check it out. And although this is our last episode, we'll be releasing some bonus material next week, so stay tuned for that. If you ever want to talk with us about our episodes, please feel free to reach out. You can email us at shiftingclimates at gmail.com or look for more contact information on our website. We'd love to meet you and hear your thoughts. Thanks again for following along with our journey this year. It's been a wild ride, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we have. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mass. See you around.